Hi, I'm Paul Shari, Director of the Technology and National Security Program here at the Center for New American Security with another edition of our Tech Program podcast series. I'm joined today by Carol Frederick, Associate Fellow in the Tech Program, and our very special guest today, Richard Fontaine, the CEO of the Center for New American Security. Welcome, Kara and Richard. Thank you very much. Thanks, Paul. So we're here today to talk about your new article out in the Wall Street Journal, The Autocrat's New Toolkit. That's a, that's a catchy title, a little ominous. Um, tell us, what is the Autocrat's New Toolkit? Well, maybe I'll start off and then hand it to Kara to go into a few of the specifics here. But we wanted to look at technologies that are only now uh, coming to fruition or that are not yet fully mature and look at how autocrats today and more particularly tomorrow might use those for essentially illiberal ends to surveil their population, to meddle in democracies abroad, to uh, perfect their own central planning and things like that. And so in this piece, we look at Uh, the rise of technologies like automated bots at scale, advances in natural language processing, um, artificial intelligence applications, facial recognition, uh, and a number of other things that together uh, can be used to help autocrats essentially do their jobs and then uh, would serve as a spur, we believe, to the democracies thinking about how to respond. But let me turn this over to Kara. Yeah, and I think it's particularly relevant today, especially with uh, the growth of a lot of these AI-driven technologies, right? They're going to help intensify scale and deliver uh, things like propaganda with a lot more precision. So while autocrats have been using some of these um, ideas to oppress their populations and, you know, over centuries, I think we're sort of entering the next generation of what is going to sharpen their ability to do these things. And the answer is in a lot of these emerging technologies. So we really wanted to to draw those out to highlight not necessarily how they're being used today, but how this could be utilized in the future and then at scale. I think that those are um, the the most salient points of what we were trying to do in this article. That is, uh, yeah, that's that's alarming. Um, none of those sound like good things. Let, let's start with what is actually happening today. Um, China is engaging in a massive campaign of repression of Uyghurs out in Xinjiang province. Um, there are a lot of methods that China is using that are very low-tech, um, but they are also incorporating some of these new technologies um, to assist in that campaign. Can you talk, talk us through a little bit what China is using on the high-tech side um, to repress its population? Yeah, so um, first I want to express a caveat here. We're not saying that, you know, these, China's already created this technological dystopia that is a a panopticon of surveillance that, you know, everywhere you you go, you're, you know, going to be alerted by robots and swarms are coming and things like that. We're not saying that. We do know that there is a a mix of low-tech and and high-tech measures um, to uh, sort of maintain control over populations, particularly in Xinjiang. Um, and uh, yeah, while you do have people embedded in certain households, um, you know, keeping the doing the human intelligence work to to keep their eye on the people who live in those households and report back to authorities, you have that. But then you also have facial recognition technologies. You know, they have stands at certain checkpoints where uh, people who cross through these checkpoints they're automatically registered um, to a specific database. And what we're concerned about is the fact that. China really does seem to be posturing to to gather and then potentially use all of this data to to detect anomalies, detect patterns. Because what what do these technologies provide other than tools to do so? 
Um, we do think that given the history of human rights abuses by the Chinese government, that their goal uh, for doing these things might be to single people out as potential dissidents, and technology is giving them the capacity to do so. And just to amplify on that, so the Chinese um, clearly want to use large data sets first to collect it through the kinds of technologies we're describing, facial recognition, and their reports that they've uh, collected DNA um, from uh, the population out in Xinjiang and, and other uh, ways of acquiring large data sets and then use AI-based applications in order to analyze it so that they can look for what they would describe as deviance. Now, deviance is in the, the mind of the beholder when it comes to this. And so if deviance is described as departure from what the Communist Party of China believes uh, Han Chinese uh, should be doing in their religious and, and political lives, then you're going to have a whole lot of deviance uh, identified in Xinjiang. And in fact, today you see a, a truly alarming number uh, of Muslims in that region that are in essentially re-education camps. Yeah, and it, it's not just confined to Xinjiang either. Um, so, I mean, think of what you can do now with, um, with when you have the botnets, right, that you can potentially automate. So you can do these things at scale um, in terms of micro-targeting. You can do it with greater precision. So it's enhancing that precision, that scalability, the efficiency, and the breadth of some of these state-controlled content mills. Um, that Harvard research report uh, from a few years ago basically said that approximately 448 social media comments a year were turned out um, by some of these uh, members of, of a so-called um, 10 cent or 50 cent army. So um, that that's important. And then I think, you know, what is going to be brought up is the social credit system. Uh, so China has explicitly stated uh, that they want this to get this going by 2020. Right now, we're not really seeing indications that algorithmic scoring is in place. Uh, it's mostly reliant on these red lists and these black lists that prevent people from maybe getting high speed train tickets or getting a government job. Um, but if you if you tend to think, OK, they have the system in place now. What is it going to look like in the future, especially as you get AI-driven technology like facial recognition to, to sort of bolster the surveillance capacity? Uh, then, uh, I mean, I think you can sort of make determinations as to where the state intends to go. I, th I think that's what's remarkable about, about this is that you see that China is building actually the infrastructure both in facial recognition and things like social credit to build this very complex system of um, social governance. Um, that China is currently using facial recognition, not just in Xinjiang, but throughout the country in a variety of different cities to do things anywhere from catching jaywalkers to, in some cases, monitoring how much toilet paper people use in public restrooms. So that's even very trivial infractions. Well, and it's, uh, these kinds of tools are not just at issue inside China because they're increasingly available for export. And they're not only available for export from China, but there are a number of uh, companies around the world that are making the kinds of tools of surveillance or repression that certainly combined um, can have a, a, a massive difference on the way uh, otherwise liberal societies might conduct themselves. Uh, you know, one example uh, that has popped up recently is the sale of a facial recognition system and database to the government of Zimbabwe, uh, which not only uh, will empower that government in Harare to um, better surveil its population through this sort of mass facial recognition process, uh, but the owners of the data uh, will be in China. And so 
uh, each of the, the scanned-in uh, faces will be exported back to China, which will then allow the company in question to refine its algorithm further and then have uh, more opportunities to export it uh, to different countries. And so we're seeing whether it's Zimbabwe, certainly Russia, Venezuela, and of course China and other countries as well, uh, we're seeing this as an increasingly um, pervasive phenomenon. And even in Gulf countries too, right? So um, what is the, the Chinese regime but a natural partner for um, countries that don't value free and open societies necessarily? So uh, what I'm concerned about is, yeah, does, is this going to start to look like a best practices exchange once uh, the technical blueprints are transferred? Um, so I think it's something to worry about the censorship and surveillance seminars uh, that have occurred in some Gulf countries uh, provided by Chinese experts. And, you know, these are not just Chinese government experts too. We do know that Chinese firms and companies um, are the ones who are selling a lot of this technology to other countries, but there is a, a degree of collaboration between the Chinese government and private companies uh, that we don't really have here in America. So when we think about you know what these firms and these companies are doing in other countries, we do have to think about the influence of the Chinese government on those efforts. Well, I think that's what's so interesting about this, is it's not just China, of course, building this at home, exporting the technology abroad, but as you said, Kara, they're also exporting their laws, their policies, their model of how to use this, because um, you know we have facial recognition technology being used in places in the United States. It's been used at Dulles Airport to catch um, people coming through airport security on fake passports. But we have a different set of institutions in the U.S. in terms of um, uh, the media, civil society, and independent judiciary that put checks and balances on how this technology is used and transparency about where and how it's used. Well, this is uh, key to the whole dilemma because these technologies, most of them are not in any way inherently bad. Um, but like all other technologies, they can be used for multiple purposes. And the same facial recognition technology that can be used to you know, spot uh, a true criminal um, who would otherwise be violent, for example, in a crowd, or um, or for whatever other reason, can be used to monitor and harass uh, dissidents, uh, or for political reasons. And the same thing is true of the other technologies we describe in this piece. You know, whether it's um, automated bots at scale or advances in natural language processing, um, Facebook has used natural language processing to try to. Uh, get uh, kind of an early warning when when folks um, post something that might indicate they would be um, at risk of suicidal uh, ideation. Well, that's uh, at least ar <laughs> arguably a good a good purpose. But if you're using it to try to keep a track on keep track of people who are expressing political views that the regime in charge finds unacceptable, that's a very different use of the exact same technology. I totally agree. I think it's very important to recognize that there are legitimate economic benefits. Like these technologies can raise people's standards of living um, and just make their lives better in general. So it's when they're repurposed for malicious uses that's when you know we want to throw the flag. So what are these technologies, the Autocrat's new toolkit, what does that mean for this broader long-running contest between freedom and authoritarianism? Well this is uh a subject not just of this piece that we have written uh, here for the Wall Street Journal, but uh, a much broader project uh, that the Center for New American Security is taking on. 
that's looking at high-tech liberalism as we're terming it and will bring together uh, efforts from across the organization to look at this contest and to determine what the democracies do about it. Um, that will bring in experts from our tech program and uh, from our regional programs, from our economics program and, and so forth. You know, I think one of the, the important things to note here is that it's more than just a human rights question. It certainly is a human rights question. Uh, Americans uh, have tended to care about internal repression in other countries um, and have wanted to try to do something about that if they can. Uh, but it's also about protecting our own democracies. You know, the, uh, in 2016, we saw the cyber hacking of the presidential election in the United States. We also saw the rise of uh, online bots uh, on social media when Russian issues were being discussed here and there. Uh, when those become indistinguishable from human beings, uh, then you have a different challenge on your hands. Um, the 50 cent army that China employs is mostly desk workers that can post comments favorable to the regime or undermining of those who would uh, oppose the regime. When that process becomes automated, then you're dealing with a different phenomenon, including a phenomenon that will reach uh, the United States. Uh, deep fakes on the video side are pretty immature now. It's hard to see um, really compelling um, content, but on the audio side, it's, it's, it's right there. And you can immediately uh, bring to mind a scenario in the future where a presidential candidate in the United States who might be critical of a foreign country uh, has a video leak that is embarrassing or that somehow diminishes them. And it will be potentially an open question about whether that video evidence is in fact accurate or not. And then, of course, the very fact that that's a possibility would allow someone to deny authentic video evidence. And so this is not just about improving democracy and, and human rights practices in other countries. It's about protecting the core democratic practice that makes the United States and uh, other countries enjoy their own way of life. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this project, too, because we're not just talking about how technology can be used to propagate a dystopian future. We're talking about how you harness these technologies for good, right? So how do you do things, maybe even defensively, right? So troll tracking, um, coding deep fake detection algorithms. So how do you use tech and turn that you know, surge of illiberalism on its face? Well, it's very exciting. Um, I am also super jazzed about this project that we've just launched um, here at CNAS on countering high-tech liberalism that brings together um, research programs from across the center. And I look forward to, to working with both of you on that. And um, listeners will continue to hear more from us on that new project as it unfolds. Thanks for coming today. Thanks a lot, Paul.